Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast, a monthly podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. I'm Alana, and I'm a second year orthopedic surgery resident at Yale. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Antonia Chen. Dr. Chen is the Director of Research for the Division of Adult Reconstruction and Total Joint Arthroplasty in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. She specializes in hip and knee replacements. Additionally, Dr. Chen is an active clinician scientist. Her research interests include infection and total joint arthroplasty, prehabilitation, opioid prescribing patterns in total joint arthroplasty, and joint stiffness. She is on numerous committees in prominent societies, including the Musculoskeletal Infection Society, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. She is also a part of multiple editorial boards for numerous orthopedic journals, including the Journal of Bone and Joint Infection, Knee Surgery, Sports Traumatology, Arthroscopy, Bone and Joint 360, and Healthcare Transformation. Dr. Chen is doing a lot for the field of orthopedic surgery, and it was an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with her. I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Dr. Antonia Chen. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Um, So I was hoping first you can kind of introduce yourself to our listeners and kind of describe your background with regard to where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, and all your post-fellowship years. So my name is Antonia Chen. I was born and raised in the tiny state of Delaware and subsequently I moved to New Jersey. Uh, when I was in New Jersey, I went to undergrad up at Yale and then went to medical school back in New Jersey at Rutgers Medical School. Nice. I subsequently went to Pittsburgh after that for residency under Dr. Freddie Fu, and then went to a, res- a fellowship over at Philadelphia at Jefferson or Rothman Institute. I practiced there for a few years and now I'm at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Wow, well done. So you're an East Coast person for sure. Through and through. <laughs> through and through. <laughs> Um, how were your uh, medical school and residency experiences? Were you, or is there anything that you kind of picked up kind of from each? Because you've been, you, isn't it, you're not one of those people who kind of went to one institution and stayed there. Like you went to many different institutions. Is there anything that you kind of picked up from each of the institutions and programs that you were a part of? That's what I loved about moving to different places. You learn something new from different people, which is really nice. So when I was an undergrad, sorry, when I was in uh, medical school at Rutgers, I met my mentor there who actually is the one who encouraged me to do joints. Mm. Uh, his name is Dr. Alfred Tria. Uh, he goes by Freddie Tria. <laughs> and I decided my first year of medical school to go into orthopedics. I was originally going to do pediatrics. Um, I like kids. And yes. I thought it would be a great situation, right? Yeah. Then I that when kids are sick or complaining, they can't tell you what hurts, they just cry. <laughs> so not the easiest to fix. And I learned something about myself that I really like to fix things. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to fix diabetes, it's hard to fix hypertension, it's hard to fix chronic medical conditions. We can fix someone with surgery. So I got really interested in surgery and we were in an anatomy lab and we would pull on, you know, like the finger or the hand and little things would move. And I was like, oh, that, that's really cool, right? Just mm-hmm. function sort of thing. So um, a hand surgeon actually encouraged us to do orthopedics and I ended up doing a research project with this guy over at, um, at Rutgers 
and uh, he was over at another hospital that was neighboring us and mm-hmm. he did knee replacements and I saw oh, patients wow. not be able to walk to walk. So that's one little thing I took from there. Probably a big thing because it influenced the rest of my life. Yes. But <laughs> that made a pretty big impact, you know. Wow. And then I went over to Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh, Dr. Fu is a big sports guy and he really told us about anatomy and how anatomy really, we had to emulate anatomy because that's what we were given in the first place. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, you can actually make patients or make people feel more natural. So that was really neat to learn from there. And then from Rothman Institute, uh, one thing that they would really well is they do efficiency really well. Mm-hmm. So they take care of a lot of people in a very efficient manner and then take care of them well. And so I took that from there as well too. So little things from every place. Right. So it's very interesting with your story in that you first thought you were going into pediatrics. And I think one can also – I was actually the same where I thought peds. And I, I yeah, I pretty much know like from peds to ortho, it's quite a jump. So it's amazing that you kind of chose that you wanted to – fix things. Were there any female mentors when you were kind of starting your journey or did you kind of experience that most of the mentors that you had were male surgeons? I was lucky. Um, I had a variety. I have to admit that people who were way above us did not have the same variety, I would say. Right. So um, I am not like breaking any glass ceilings. The ones above <laughs> us, like the you know, the Christy right. Webbers, they're really breaking glass ceilings, which are right. awesome. Uh, and we can ride on their coattails, which is also nice. And they can also be our mentors as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my biggest experience probably with a female mentor was when I was a third year resident at Pittsburgh. Um, I attended my very first American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. And it's very daunting. You know, all these people are really magical at their field. All these people who you've heard about or read about and you've never right. actually met them in your life. And I met a surgeon, Dr. Audrey Tao there, mm-hmm. and she was a joint surgeon. Uh, and she was also having to be an Asian female, but you don't necessarily need to have that. But she was basically everything I wanted to be. And she was in charge of a membership committee. And she was like, hey, do you want to help out with it? And I was like, of course I want to help. <laughs> of course. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're going to ask, you're talking to me. You know? Right, right, <laughs> exactly. You're looking around, you're like, who do you actually want to talk to? And so I was a resident member of there, and I was a third-year resident, pretty impressionable at that time, and she was great about it. And she still is my mentor to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many other female mentors I would count as well, too. I'm part of this Women Orthopedic Global Outreach, I think we'll talk a little bit yes. about later. But all those women are fabulous women, again, who were broken this glass ceiling before me. You know, Mary O'Connor is an incredible woman to watch, but she's risen through the ranks and done. And Christy Weber is our first female president, which is fantastic. So exactly. um, while there may not be direct mentorship, because we're not in the exact same veins or the exact same committees or or groups, mm-hmm. um, I have a lot to learn from them or, and have right. learned a lot from them as well. Right. Out of, you know, and you talk about Mary O'Connor and I'm here at Yale and I'm very fortunate that we have, you know, very strong female representation, both in residency as well as in faculty. I was wondering if you could talk about your experiences in residency. Were there other female residents um, in your program, female attendings? Is that something that was when you were looking at which residency programs to go to was that something that was very important for you or is that just something that kind of at the time you just kind of got what you got so it was interesting um when i was actually looking for residencies that was of interest to me but not a priority for me i have to Mm -hmm. admit that said i did come from a program that had zero female residents at the time really and it's nice to have one female resident at least (laughs) in the program right Right. uh, get so when I received the match list of the people who got in the pit, mm-hmm. there were eight of us who matched there. And I kept looking at the list and be like, Diane has to be a boy's name. Sarah has to be a boy's name. Right. And I just went on the list. There were five out of eight girls in my class. No. First time ever in Pittsburgh. It never happened before. Just by chance, we were in a class of five out of eight girls. Wow, that's so, phenomenal. 
It was oh. fantastic. Dr. Fu really made a push for mm-hmm. uh, gender diversity, I would say. Right. In every class, there was at least one female mm-hmm. in class. And, you know, it's a match is a chance. I could have matched at Pitt. I could have matched somewhere else. Right. And I matched at my home institution where I you know, wouldn't have any females who are residents. Mm-hmm. But I, that was something of interest to me. So I'm really glad that it worked out that way. That's awesome. Over the course of your training, do you feel that there have been more women or at least that you're able to see? Because I know that the numbers certainly show that we're slowly kind of but surely increasing the number, not so much the percentage. But what have you kind of seen um, in the institution and programs that you have been a part of? I've definitely seen it. And the best thing about it, I think, is just the culture of understanding. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a resident, one of the attendings looked at me and goes like, sometimes the women work harder than the men. And I was like, <laughs> you said it, you said it. But, right. So there's a recognition that women add a lot to the table as well as men, as well as, you know, racial diversity, everything, right. just a, a, to geographic diversity, everything like that really adds a lot to the table and just brings for a good group of individuals and we work better as a team. So I think there's a huge recognition of that. It, and I think this is across not just medicine, thankfully it's, it's business, it's all different areas, recognizing diversity of teams makes for better groups. Exactly. So I definitely have seen it. The number of female applicants, have is increased, I would say. Mm-hmm. I think because people are starting to see more women in, let's say, faculty positions, and they're able to emulate them. And so, definitely, the residencies have increased. The residents have increased of females, and also faculty. I think whatever in the past there was two schools of thinking. One is I don't want to be an orthopedic surgeon because I'll be too busy and I won't be able to have a family. Right. Then you start seeing people who have families and then they're like, oh, I can do that. And two is academics. I feel like less women are interested in academics because there's a lot of rigor to, you know, teaching, doing mm-hmm. research, et cetera, et cetera. But again more and more people who might be interested in it in the past may not want to do it because of the lifestyle balance. Right. And I see that they can balance lifestyle potentially. So seeing that, you know, I get to see the, the Mary O'Connors, the Christy Webbers, you know, right. who work their tail left off, but at the same time can do things that are outside of work. Yeah. And so yeah. seeing that you say, I too can do that, which is really nice. No, that's, I totally agree. Um, speaking of research, one of the very humbling parts about preparing for this interview was looking at your publications and the sheer number of publications. I think it was over like 150 publications that you've had, and it was just mind boggling. And I was just wondering just literally how, how is it that you were able to do everything, the residency, have a great life, you know, do all the sorts of things inside and outside of medicine and yet just produce, have so many publications. So sleep is optional. <laughs> don't recommend. <laughs> that's probably not an example. So that's by far the worst thing about me. I don't sleep very much and I get in a lot of trouble for that. Um, that said, I am surrounded by good teams and mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. So each one of those papers are not just written by me. They're written with other people as well too. Whether it be editing, idea generation, teamwork and group together or data gathering. Uh, it's been great just doing it. Mm-hmm. I, for whatever reason, every time I write a paper and I have to go through all the corrections and back and forth, back and forth, right. you forget the end of the last one mm-hmm. and <laughs> you do it again. <laughs> so I just think the idea of research, at least what drives me to do research, is that we can move the target forward, right? It's not right. just doing the same thing over and over again. It's about studying something and changing what we do. Mm-hmm. That's the goal is to make some sort of practice changing research. Not all my research is practice changing, let's admit it. And that's true for everyone, right? Right. Um, But if we can move that needle to say, hey, this is why we do something, kind of justifying it, or Mm -hmm. what should we do differently to improve our patients, that's what drives me to keep doing it. So it's a drug that I keep going for. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, And you did mention that you are a joint surgeon. um, And I was wondering if you could talk about, I know you kind of mentioned the reason why you were kind of steered 
toward the subspecialty of joints is because of your mentor. Could you kind of go into more about your subspecialty choice of joint replacement surgery? So I was exposed to it as a med student, but that's that once you hit residency, everything seems really interesting and really right. neat the time you do it. Same thing like medical school, right? I did psychiatry and I thought it was interesting. <laughs> I knew I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. You're like, was, mm, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, I knew myself well enough to know that, right? right. But when I came to orthopedics, all of it was great. Like sports was great, hand was great, footing, everything was really interesting the first time you do it. Mm -hmm. um, what I really fell in love with was with open surgery. So I knew a few things about myself. Yeah. I knew I didn't like using loops and I knew I didn't like using microscopes. And I, didn't, I knew I didn't like to sit there and futz with fractures to get them within 0.5 millimeters. <laughs> but that's personal, I right. knew that So I like open surgery, so I, I narrowed it down to spine and to joints. Those are my two favorite. Mm -hmm. um, and I love spine. And then I went to spine clinic. <laughs> You're just like, no, no. Patients with leg pain would cure, get cured, but back pain is really hard to cure. Yeah. It's impossible to cure sometimes. So I went to joints clinic and patients got cured of their arthritis, right? Mm -hmm. They could walk again. They can move like they couldn't before. So the patient population really what drove me to arthroplasty. As one of my mentors back at Pitt, uh, Chick Yates used to say, he goes, I make grandma walk again. And that <laughs> was a really cool thing because you'd see literally someone hobble in and then a few weeks later post-op, they'd walk out. Right. And that's really powerful. So I decided awesome. to do arthroplasty. Right. I do want to talk about what some critics will say about joint replacement surgery, and maybe you can kind of demystify these myths um, about joint reconstruction and that like, as women, um, many of the deterrents for young women going into orthopedic surgery is the fact that it's so physical. Um, and joint surgery is one of those specialties or subspecialties, I should say, in which you are literally moving a leg around and, you know, as you're testing the components that you just placed in. And so I was wondering if you can kind of talk about how, as a female surgeon, you are able to do your job as a joint surgeon. So I have to admit, uh, once I became an attending, I work out more than I did as a resident <laughs> because I knew the buck stops with me, right. right? So you have to be strong enough to do stuff. But I think the key factor is when I was a resident, I thought I had to do everything on my own, right? I need to prove myself. I need to be the best at everything. And you still want to do a really good job, but it's okay to ask for help. So if I have a hip dislocation, mm -hmm. you know, I will literally turn to someone who looks like that has more muscle than I will and say, male or female, doesn't right. matter. Right, right. <laughs> and say, please help me. You know, or two of you, please help me. Mm -hmm. And so when I built my operating room team too, I would have no problem now asking, hey, I'm going to hold this in place, but then you can hit it in because mm -hmm. I want it in the right position because that's what matters most. Right. So when it comes to those sort of things, I realized that one, you can work smarter, uh, not necessarily harder. Mm -hmm. uh, and two, it's okay to ask for help. So those are things that have kind of changed in my practice. I think a lot of arthroplasty surgeons, male and female, get a lot of joint problems, shoulder mm -hmm. problems, people have rotator cuff, cervical spine, lumbar spine. We have a lot of aches and joint pains because we're standing up all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not like cancer where you're sitting down, right? Or right. put an ankle where it's smaller or peds where the lifting help is for a 20-pound mm -hmm. kid. Right. You know, my lifting help is for a 300-pound person, right? <laughs> so, I still lift my own patients. I still do things like that, but right. I do ask for help. Right. So it's okay to do it male or female and just be smarter about it because the guys too also are hurting afterwards. Yeah, exactly. So nice. Beneficial to help them. Longevity. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the other myths about joint replacement surgery that some critics and haters will say is that it's the same procedures. You're doing the same incisions. You're doing the same steps over and over again. What would you say to those, you know, residents or med students who are just like, nah, I'm not doing joints, it's the same procedure. 
So the first thing that drew me was outcomes. So what's nice about joints is that's predictable. Mm. Because I become really good at them. And what's interesting is I didn't think I was that type of person. I thought I liked huge variety, hence my research, right? right. I like to research in a bunch of different areas. So I like to see a variety of things. But if you can do something and perfect it to make a patient walk better, mm. that's one thing. True. Two, everyone's anatomy is also a little different, right? Just like the lumbar spine, right? A little bit different anatomy, a little bit different areas. And there's different things that you want to place things into the right area. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing too. Um, and arthroplasty, I find it fun because you can actually, you know, right, left, hip, mm-hmm. knee, primary revision. <laughs> That's true. And so I keep the revisions because I think it's important to do the revisions because they are more complex. They make you think and they make you go through different iterations of things. And personally, actually, that's why I like working with residents and students because that is when you're constantly teaching and constantly on your feet. It's no longer a boring procedure. When I'm walking a resident or a med student through a procedure, mm-hmm. I'm talking about every little step. And you can see that working through the, the mechanics of it, the how, how to actually put together a good knee, how to get to together a good hit. Right. And you kind of see them take something on paper and make it something real. Mm-hmm. And I think without that variety, it could get boring. But that's why I like working with students, residents, and fellows as well, too. Awesome. Well done. You did choose academic medicine. Was there? Did you ever think about going into private practice, or were you, and could you kind of, for our listeners who are kind of um, just for review for some of them, what are kind of the pros and cons and ter- that you were kind of contemplating when you decided to do your route of academic medicine and you know to be able to work with residents and students and such? So technically the first practice I was part of is private practice, but mm-hmm. they call it academics, which is uh, private practice with an academic bent to it. Mm-hmm. Mine is pure academic medicine and then there's pure private practice. Each one of them had their pluses and minuses. So for me, I knew I wanted to do research. It's hard to find a practice, especially a private practice that's going to support research because it's, a, it's time away from operating mm-hmm. and it's, it's a money sink, right? Whenever I have to hire a research fellow, that's gonna take resources. Right. Now some practices, they, they highly value that. They mm-hmm. say, you know, we want to study, we want to be on the map of uh, research and things like that. So I recognize that a lot of private practices don't do that. Mm-hmm. So that's why I started with Privademics. It was the same place I did my fellowship. And so they kind of had the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to academic medicine, the benefits of it is like they, I think they value things like research or leadership or committee participation, things like that. So activities outside of the typical seeing patients and operating on patients. So you have interests that fall outside of the academic medicine tends to be a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not always the case though, right? You can still do that in private practice, but in academic medicine, you're also more likely to work with residents, fellows, and students. For some people, that's great. For some people, that's harder. Mm-hmm. So if you're the type of person who just wants to do all the cases on your own mm-hmm. and work with the same physician assistant over and over again, which is good because that gives you a routine, it can be harder to work in academic medicine because mm-hmm. of the variety of you know residents, students, and fellows who rotate through. So part of it's knowing your own personality. Mm-hmm. If you want to know have that aspect of things, um, I think there's a financial aspect as well too, although it's starting to blend a little bit more with hospital employment and shit. So if you're in a hospital employee, you kind of get a salary. That's more of the traditional academic model. And the private practice model is more of eat what you kill. Which mm-hmm. means you do a case, you get paid for it. But some of academic medicine is turning into that as well too. Mm-hmm. So the financial models are trying to blend in a little bit more. It's not quite the same when it comes to that. Um, academic medicine, you have a less tendency from a financial perspective potentially to, let's say, um, take part ownership in things. So if you had an x-ray system, mm-hmm. you may not be able to buy it because that's your hospitals. Right. But if you're a private practitioner, you might put own it, and that may, we call that ancillary income. And some people like that, and some people don't want to deal with the headache of the business of it. Mm-hmm. So it kind of depends on what you feel like. Uh, I think the biggest differentiators are kind of your support staff who you work with and research-wise. Nice. Very cool. Well, one of the number one things I did want to discuss with you 
is uh, WOGO, uh, which I know and you know, but I think I should probably say for the listeners, is the Women Orthopedists Global Outreach Group. Um, could you describe for our listeners what WOGO is and what it is that you all do? So WOGO is a group of women surgeons who are coming back from a conference, sitting in an airport lounge and saying, why don't we do our own group where we go out and do joint replacements for free for patients who can't afford it. Right. And born literally in an airport lounge with a napkin stained with a little bit of wine, or maybe a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs> that's what makes more conversations go well. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, uh, they, a group ahead of us kind of said, this is what we want to do. And so um, Operation Walk is a well-known group started by Larry Dorr. Mm-hmm. They did a fantastic job bringing joint replacements to other countries. Uh, again, for most patients who may not be able to afford it, and the idea is to give patients mobility so they can get back to work or taking care of their families or things that they need to do. We're the only arm where we're from multiple different parts of the country and we're all females. So every single surgeon on the team is a female, which is a really nice thing. Mm-hmm. We just limit ourselves to total knees and the reason is because we can bring less equipment. If we had to bring equipment for hips and knees, it would exponentially grow our inventory. But we can actually, we all do total knees and we do all varieties of it. Mm-hmm. So our last trip was to Cuba in last April and we did 53 knees and we also did a distal femoral replacement. So a patient was previously infected from another team. We went back and re-implanted the patient with the distal femoral replacement. So Mm. it's nice to have that continuity of care as well too. I think that's something that people talk about when it comes to these outreach, but there's a lot of operational walk teams that Mm -hmm. all kind of work together, which is nice. Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. So how many, how long have you been a part of WOGO and like how many different trips have you been able to be a part of? So I was supposed to take my first trip as a senior resident. We were going to go to Peru. Our equipment was ready to leave from the U.S. over, and they were like, well, you need to pay this extra tax on it, essentially mm. a bribe. And we don't do those right. with Operation Walk. So a week before the trip, we pulled it, which mm. sunk. The next time I was able to go was to Operation Walk in Congo. Oh. It was also the time of my boards. Oh, <laughs> so, no. Because I wouldn't be able to sit for my boards. Right. That would be a problem. So my first trip was actually last April. Oh, wow. Phenomenal. So I've been carefully involved for a long time. Right. But finally involved as of last April. Right. Have you been able to kind of just develop, I'm, I'm just assuming the relationships that you're able to develop with your fellow surgeons is just something that you guys are going to be able to have for the rest of your careers. It's fantastic. So that first person I told you about, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Audrey Tso, my first email mentor, I would say, mm-hmm. is on these trips. So mm-hmm. she's the one who pulled me into this, which has been great. That's part of the mentorship, which is fantastic. And there's a whole bunch of them who are fantastic, who we've all kind of, we bond together um, with the common goal, you know, improving our patients. And we happen to be female, and that's kind of nice. We don't just operate on female patients, mm-hmm. but we do preferentially try to select females if they're, especially their breadwinner or their family, and that her not being able to walk means she can't work. That also becomes a problem. Uh, but we uh, work together as a team, which is really nice. And I have some pretty strong females who are great role models and also mentors in my life. Yeah, oh, that's phenomenal. Um, I think what a lot of people kind of assume with these mission trips is that you always just kind of grab everything and then head on over. So I was hoping that you can kind of describe the process of you have, okay, we want to do, you know, this outreach project seven months from now or nine months from now, if you can kind of describe what it is that actually goes into a global outreach trip to a developing country. 
a lot of work. It's way more work than I expected in all honesty. So what happens is a year or two in advance. So we do it every two years. Wow. So up to two years in advance, we had to find a place. Mm-hmm. Location is dependent on a few things. One, we want to go back to Congo because we've been there before and we want to see those patients again and also treat new patients as well as teaching the team there how to do joint replacements because it was the first time they ever got joint replacements. But the safety of a country and the safety of the environment at the time makes a big difference. So right now there's Ebola and, and political unrest. We couldn't go back to Congo. So we reached out to Operation Walk and say, what sites need to be visited? You know, where else needs to be done? So selecting a site is the first big step that can take up to six months to select a site. Wow. Once we get a site, yeah, it can take a while. Once we get a site, we need to also do some reconnaissance. Do they have a need? Do they have resources? Do they have surgeons on the ground in case we need, you know, there's follow-up for patients and things mm-hmm. like that. And then there's resources. So what we do is we keep our resources in one area and then we actually have to go and ask for donations to fill them every single time we take a trip. We bring everything with us. So we bring surgical masks, we bring the instruments, we bring all the drapes, we bring sterile gloves, we bring anesthesia equipment, we bring medications. We bring all those things that we don't really think about in the hospital. We just go and grab it. Like right. think of back of latex gloves, right? We don't <laughs> yeah, you just like throw those, yes, yeah. And the booties on the you know for our shoes and stuff like that. So we bring everything. And we have to get it on inventory. We have to check our inventory of existing. What else do we need to need? We need to go through all the drugs to see what's expired, what's not expired, what we need to ask for. So we actually go to a bunch of different companies and ask them for donations. And some companies will say yes, and some companies will say no. And so if one person says no, we have to go to the next company and the next company. So it's a lot of asking, obviously in the good name of helping patients, but it is a lot of back and forth work that goes into that. And then getting the inventory into one place, getting out in a package, and then shipping the whole cargo over. Mm-hmm. And then getting carbogol back which is also another fun one and then we do a pre-trip so actually our team just came back from a pre-trip in bolivia mm. and get the lay of the land meet with the hospital see patient x-rays we screen patients ahead of time and screen them again once we're there and make sure they're still healthy enough to undergo surgery we get their x-rays so we know what the parts to order so zimmer's been our constant sponsor they're fantastic they donate all the implants but they're not going to bring everything that's available in the hospital right we're going right. to bring a certain amount based on what we think from the x-rays get them ready and go mm-hmm. and the question is, is it enough or not? But we just kind of go from past experience and what we need to bring. Right. So a lot. Of, and then one team comes in a little bit in advance. So let's say everyone else is getting there on Friday. They'll get there on a Tuesday. Set everything up. Set up the ORs like we would set up our ORs at home. Mm-hmm. And set up a clinic and injections and things like that. And then run it like we would at home. Wow. That's, it's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that just sounds amazing. And kind of stresses the importance of preoperative templating for us residents. So <laughs> certainly. That's also so important. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I was wondering if we can talk about some critics of global health initiatives. Um, we'll kind of um, throw shade on these quote-unquote mission trips in the sense that you go over, you bring all of your supplies um and oftentimes this requires a lot of time and resources from everybody involved the post-op follow-up for these patients is often left to the local providers Um, sometimes it can be difficult to track the clinical outcomes of the patients that um, are operated on and there's often not as much emphasis on educating the local providers on how to kind of help with the orthopedics um, surgery itself. And so I was wondering if you can kind of talk to some of the criticisms that often surround global health. 
So that's a big problem. Um, definitely why we try to use places that have, have previously had operation walks and will follow with other operation walks teams. So the idea is it's continuity of people who also do orthoplasty. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let's say we operate in Bolivia. That's a common place for operation walk teams to go. You know, a few months after we go, another operation walk team will go. So it's not just stuck to the local area. And that's what's nice about going through a global organization like Operation Walk. We work together to make sure that we don't do that right. because that's the worst thing to do for you know, our patients. Um, another thing too, let's say we had a patient in Congo and they, you know, no one's going over there to unfortunately operate on them. So we actually brought the patient and flew them over to States when they had a complication. Right. So, you know, it happened months and months later, but still something that we feel responsible for. So we raised the funds and everything like that to set the patient up. Um, and then finally, what we can do too is teach the local surgeons. So one of our friends, uh, one of my friends, he's at Penn, he's actually going to open up a hospital in Tanzania. Oh, wow. And in Tanzania, what he's going to do is he's going to have teams come in for two week blocks at a time, back to back to back to back mm -hmm. to clean up stuff that happened or any leftover patients that need surgery. So that way, and, and teach all the local residents and attendings there too, which would be a benefit as well. Wow, that's phenomenal. Um, when and so you were able to get involved into global health what would you say for um, other orthopedic surgeons or orthopedic surgeons in training who want to get involved in global outreach so the first thing I would say is I would highly encourage everyone to at least experience it once in your life and I think what happens in America appropriately so probably is we're used to you know fast food or netflix or getting what we want at a turn of a dime right mm -hmm. you know i need surgery i should get surgery if i patients who are in other countries are incredibly grateful for what they don't have mm -hmm. and then get so just to see that i think that we all said it too is when that patient who hasn't walked in years decades takes their first step mm -hmm. it's the most amazing thing in the world so and i think that reminds us why we went to medicine in the first place. I think a lot of us get tied into medicine and say, you know, medicine is great because you can pay off your loans, you know, mm -hmm. or it's things like that. You know, we, we miss the bigger picture of medicine, you know, and I think a lot of times if you ask a student why they went to medicine in the first place, like we want to help people. Right. Well, right, we forget those, I think, by regular daily practice. So being able to do so is seeing patients who are really grateful and grateful that you can give back in a way with your skills that is very meaningful to someone else. Yes. Um, I was fortunate enough to do a trip with Operation Walk to Nicaragua, and I cool. that is literally the exact thought process that I had after that trip, is that I did it right after that I had matched, and it was this absolutely beautiful thing in which I realized, oh yes, this is why you know, I went into medicine, because I think especially right after the match, I was so concerned about what residency program am I going to, like worried about test scores, worried about all these sorts of things and just have, it was such a humbling experience because it really does bring you back to why it is that we all kind of decided to become surgeons and physicians and helping people. So that was just, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, I do want to talk about kind of, we are surgeons. Um, and so I do want to talk about how it is that you perfect your craft as an orthopedic surgeon. Do you have any like skills or processes that you do in order to make sure that you are perfecting your skills a as a surgeon? 
So a few things. So I'll, I can talk about arthroplasty, but I have to admit that if I did arthroscopy, I'd probably play video games. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do arthroscopy as much, so I don't have to play video games. From an arthroplasty perspective, I think as an attending, one thing that I forget is that I can learn from others, mm-hmm. right? At this point in time in my career, and I'm young in my career, I could be like, well, what I do is right. So I should probably stick to it. And that's not the case. There's so much that you can learn from other people. So at my stage in my career, what I think is really interesting are things like traveling fellowships, Mm. where you can watch people operate and learn from them, or going to courses and meetings where people talk about different techniques, different tips and tricks, which are actually useful, or cadaver courses or different areas where I can still learn from things. So I might go teach a course, but I actually can learn from the other people who are teaching other people. The other thing as a resident, I think, is try to rotate with as many people as possible. I think some people get a good reputation and you want to operate with them more because they don't let you do more, which is a great thing. But there's also still a lot of benefit to learning from someone who you're operating with and maybe you're not doing as much, but you can learn tips and tricks from them. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you some of the tips and tricks I learned are actually from different specialties. Wow. Right? So I remember on the resident, I was like, oh, you know, my shoulder guy used to do this or my you know, foot and ankle colleague used to do that. And I was like, oh, I can use that in my practice. Mm-hmm. So I think the key as any surgeon, and this is, goes back to your question about being a joint surgeon and being bored with right or left or hip and knee, <laughs> vision, right? Is right. We can improve our craft we can still learn we can still pick up things and you know, I've seen some surgeons who have been in practice for 20 years switch to a different surgical approach you know because I think their patients will do better right. so if they're doing it in the name of patient care and they do it appropriately they start with cadaver courses they you know shadow someone they watch someone and they have someone proctor them and they get through a whole learning curve with other people helping them mm-hmm. that's a beneficial thing so as long as you keep doing it for patient care and not for other reasons and that matters oh, well done awesome I, this is a podcast that hopes to, you know, highlight um, women in orthopedic surgery um, and was inspired because of the fact of the lack of gender diversity that is in our field. Um, so I was wondering if we could take a moment to just kind of talk about, you know, the lack of gender diversity and kind of what your outlook is uh, and what is, do you think that there's anything that we should be doing um, in our field to kind of help increase, I know that's a very broad question, but to help increase um, the gender diversity in our field. The good news is you ask 10 people this, they get 10 different answers. Yeah. So there's a, a different, bunch of different ways to skin a cat. And I think the thing that means the most to me is when women aren't looked at as women, for lack of a better term. And what I mean by this is I was walking with a mentor once, and my mentor said to me, I don't think there's any differences between men and women in orthopedics. And I go, really? Because if I have dinner with you one-on-one, people will think they're having an affair. Yeah. But if a guy a dinner with a guy one-on-one, you're two guys going out for dinner. Mm-hmm. And that's not fair. Right. And, and to be fair with this whole Me Too movement, I have guys who said, I don't feel comfortable going out with a woman one-on-one because of the optics of it or, mm-hmm. you know, how she'll perceive it. Versus if it were truly gender neutral, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who you have dinner with right. or lunch with or breakfast with, right? right? That you should be able to have dinner one-on-one with anyone and have it be about business. Right. So that's what I love to see where the field goes. Where, where that needs to come from is probably a lot of different changes ahead of that. Yeah. And 
that's what I love to see is gender neutral, you know, and that means gender diversity. You take someone because they're good, not because they're male, female, orange, purple, green, whatever. Right. They're, they're good at what they do, you know, and I think they're starting to recognize that, that, you know, women can do just as good of a job as men mm-hmm. in what the people, for example. So I think those ties are changing. And I think the idea really to do it is by just opening people's eyes to it. Right. You know, like for some guys it has to be, it's okay that you go to lunch with your female colleague and it's, not awkward, right? right? Because she's just one of the guys. Mm-hmm. And then from other guys, it's like, okay, you need to tone down some things right, <laughs> so that right. it's appropriate to hang out. It just depends on the person, you know? And then the same thing with women too, on both sides of things. So I think trying to take the, the big term that people are talking about now are implicit biases, mm-hmm. to light and recognizing them and addressing them. So if I may feel implicitly biased that if I have dinner one-on-one with a guy that I feel that that is, you know, derogatory towards me or something like that, then that's something I need to work on, right? Mm-hmm. We're working goals and it's okay. And I think if we all work on that ourselves in with training and things like that, that can actually improve our field as well as all other fields, but especially in orthopedics. But I, will once, I will say for one thing though, in arthroplasty, because there's so few females, Whenever I go to a meeting, there's no line for the bathroom. Exactly. Isn't that the best things about ortho? It's just you go into these conferences and you're just like, oh my gosh, the one time in my life where I don't have to wait at the bathroom. But I don't mind if we have gender equality in orthopedic where I will have to wait in line for the yes, bathroom. Yes, exactly. I'm willing to make that sacrifice. I am willing to take that for the team. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so true. Um, I was hoping... It's interesting that you talk about the implicit bias talk because I, you know, I've I've heard this kind of um, for the past couple months. I think people have started to have this in the conversation, and it's almost I feel like this chicken and egg sort of thing where like which came first in the sense that in order to have and have people see that there are these implicit biases you need to have more women and you need to have more women being vocal and at the same time in order for there to be more women and to have these women be more vocal you need the recognition of the implicit biases and so it's i i think it's very interesting the situation that we're in because it's like we kind of need one with the other and yet we need the other with the one and so i don't know if you have any comments on that so one thing I will add, actually, in terms of how can we move our field forward in terms of gender diversity is having men recognize it. Yeah. And um, it'd be great to have all female cheerleaders, but it's, as you said, it's very hard to when we are so few of us in the field of orthopedics. I think what I'm very impressed with that a lot of men are taking up the banner. Mm-hmm. Some men are, are being champions. My, my, some, a lot of my mentors were men. Right. And they supported me because is maybe in spite of as a woman because of a woman. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But. They supported me for me right. and more men need to do that, raise women to leadership positions, raise recognition for a woman, raise the flag. And that'll help our cause in ways that it's helped many other causes throughout the nation. Right. right. Um, I say racial diversity. It's not just, you know, that racial group standing up for themselves. It's mm-hmm. other groups also supporting them and saying this is a, a plight. And I think they're starting to do that in orthopedics. I think more and more men are starting to take on that banner. Some don't want to, and I, I get that, yeah. but some are really willing to. Mm-hmm. And as we get more people on our side, for lack of a better term, right, tends to help one raise awareness of the biases and also kind of erase some of the biases. You know, if they see someone, hey, that guy's supporting that woman, she must be pretty good. Right. And then all of a sudden it becomes like, she's good, not that she's a woman. Mm-hmm. I know, I, yes. Like, I totally agree with you because I feel when you actually look at like the percentages, you know, there's less than 10% of women 
there's 90% of men. If we're only using the 10% of women that we have to increase the number of women, this is going to be a very, very long process before we actually get to that level of gender diversity. And so I think utilizing some of that 90% might actually help make this process go a little bit faster. Um, and I know that I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with me. So I do want to get into my last six questions that I have for you. Um, and these are the questions I'm going to ask every guest um, on our show. And so my first question is, what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? My favorite is a total knee replacement. It sounds so easy, but I love that it's exposure. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different ways you can tweak it. And so as a resident, you learn about gap balancing. And if you cut more distal femur, you get this. If you cut more posterior flexion, if you increase the size, it's, it's tinkering. Right. And if you tinker it right, you get a perfect knee. Mm -hmm. And that perfect knee allows a patient to walk again. So from a technical perspective, I love total knee. And I love patients after surgery. Now my total hip patients do better just because <laughs> total hip patients always do better. Right. I do like the technical aspects of total knee. Um, what are your go-to topics for grand round presentations? So when I was a first-year resident, mm -hmm. I was interested in doing some sort of research because everyone did research, right? right. So I went to my mentor at that, who had ended up becoming a mentor, and I got like to do a project. So he gave me a product that was called the Pittsburgh Experience Infections. Oh. And I was like, how do you publish something called the Pittsburgh Experience? The answer is you don't. <laughs> <laughs> But I started doing research on infections, right. and ever since, infections has been my absolute go-to topic for every single talk that I've given just about. Oh, awesome. I know. You, congratulations on your paper um, in JBJS. That was a great read. Um, so congratulations on that. Um, what is, yes, of course. Uh, what is your favorite memory as an orthopedic surgeon? So my favorite memory probably was two of them. One is when I first saw my first joint replacement. And I looked at the salt, I looked at the tool. I, I grew up with a sister and I didn't use power tools and stuff like that, but I was the one assembling the Ikea furniture. I mean, it wasn't right, right. fancy sophisticated. It was, you know, me and a screwdriver essentially and a hammer, right? right? And I walked into the operating room and it was like saw blades and hammers and jigs. And I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> so, and I, again, I'm not a mechanically inclined person. I right. loved it. So that was my first thing. Um, and the second thing is I remember going to my first hip and knee society, American Association of hip and knee surgeons meeting. And when I went there, I was introduced to someone who happened to have a classification named after him. Ooh. And so I go, you are that person? <laughs> and to finally meet someone who's so famous in your mind, right? right. Because you've used a classification and learned a classification, to actually meet them in the flesh, mm -hmm. it was the most embarrassing moment of my life. <laughs> Yet one of the most memorable because you're like, you're a real person. Right. And they were a great normal person too. So it's very cool to see that. Oh, that's phenomenal. Um, what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine that you enjoy to do? What's that? No, I'm just kidding. I know exactly right. You're <laughs> like, hmm, what is that? <laughs> I don't understand. My absolute favorite thing to do in my free time is to play with my four-pound dog, Lily. Aww. Lily is a Yorkshire Terrier. She's not supposed to be four pounds. She's supposed to be a lot bigger than that, but she doesn't like to eat. Aww. So I'm with her. Oh, that's <laughs> adorable. Um, when did you get her? I got her in 2016. She is. She just turned three yesterday, actually. Oh my! Did you have a birthday party? Well, she doesn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I gave her a treat, and she was very happy. Oh, good. 
Um, what are your future goals and projects? I know you have a lot of going on, um, but in terms of what are the next steps that you're hoping to make in your career? funny thing I think is the first time in my career where you don't know what the next step really is in all mm-hmm. honesty uh, I think from a research perspective for example I love to be able to do a big prospective randomized control trial across many institutions that hopefully changes our practice and I'm looking into doing so in infection and antibiotic duration mm-hmm. because we're not sure about how much to give our antibiotics for you know patients come in for seven days for ten days yeah. for two weeks for, so that's one big area that has not been established yet so that's what I would like to do uh, one of the things from a research perspective From a clinical perspective, obviously continue taking good care of patients. Uh, From a leadership perspective, right now I'm in my institution right now and director of clinical research for arthroplasty services, great. Um, Whether or not it turns into something else, like my mentors have done before me, are also good opportunities, whether it be department leadership, and society leadership, you know, either hip and knee society or AOS or AOA, those are all things to be determined, Mm -hmm. um, things that I think I aspire for. Phenomenal. And my last question for you is what advice do you have for female orthopedic surgeons and female orthopedic surgeons in training? So my best advice I would say is to lean on each other. And I think that we're taught as female orthopedic surgeons to be strong, independent, and do it yourself. Mm -hmm. That's not what the guys do. The guys show each other's cases, show each other's complications, ask each other's questions, build each other up, bring each other up. And they do that for women as well too, but women aren't as good at that routinely as men are. And so I think this generation of women, we're doing that to one another. We recommend each other for things, we invite each other to things. So support each other, don't see each other's competition, see each other as building the best thing in orthopedics. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Chen. I know you're very busy and congratulations on everything that you've done. And I really hope you the best of luck with, you know, your future endeavors. Thank you so much. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Antonia Chen. And we hope to bring you more great interviews on the She Can Fix It podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or YouTube. You can also find us on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. References for this podcast include an article for which Dr. Chen was a senior author on. The article is entitled, perioperative antibiotic prophylaxis in total joint arthroplasty, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This article was published in JBJS in May 2019. Finally, I want to say thank you to all of you, all the listeners who are taking the time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, please spread the word. Tell your friends, your mentors, your medical students, If you have any questions or would like to hear a friend, mentor, or legend on this podcast, please feel free to email us at shecanfixitpod at gmail.com. I would like to take a moment to thank those who helped to make this podcast possible. A sincere thank you to Dr. Mary O'Connor for her mentorship in creating this podcast. Thank you to the amazing attendings here at Yale, Dr. Carrie Swigert, Dr. Adrian Sochi, Dr. Elizabeth Gardner, and Dr. Andy Halim 
for being exemplary role models for us. And finally, many, many thanks to my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanny Kirk, without whom this podcast could not be possible. Thank you.